Blog Talk Radio. This is Cale Brown. Now, I didn't play a doctor on TV, but I will prescribe Brandon's Buzz for absolutely anybody who wants to know what's really going on. Hey, guys, this is Brett Claywell from One Life to Live, and you're listening to Brandon's Buzz. This is Taylor Dane, and you are listening to the one and only Brandon Buzz. Hi, this is Lynn Herring on Brandon's Buzz. It's the great entertainment talk show on now. Brandon, I love you. Thanks for having me. This is Linda Dano. I'm on Brandon's Buzz, and I have to tell you, what a fun hour I just had. Ah. This is a great kid with a wonderful heart and soul. You listen every day. I know I will. Hey, hey, this is Nia Peoples, and you are checking out Brandon's Buzz right now. Hi, everyone. This is Eric Martin from the band Mr. Big. I'm live and kicking on Brandon's Buzz. Hi, this is Dave Camaro, and you're going to love buzzing with Brandon's Buzz. Hey guys, welcome back to Brandon's Buzz. I indeed am Brandon. Today is Thursday, July 3rd, 2014. It's 10 p.m. in the east. It's 7 p.m. out west. It's 9 p.m. here in Texas. And we're going on back to the old school tonight with what I hope you'll agree is a pretty fun, if not extraordinary, conversation. You know, I don't know how many of my listeners will even recognize the name Sharon Gabbett, who has been out of the soap game for about 25 years now, to the detriment of a whole hell of a lot of us who revere a style of soap acting, an intoxicating mix of raw sexuality and intense live wire feminine vulnerability that Miss Gabbett very much helped pioneer as daytime dramas became a national obsession. But she was an utter sensation in the late 70s and early 80s as the scheming goddess-turned-beloved heroine Raven Alexander Whitney on ABC's classic soap The Edge of Night. And in Gabbett's own words, she would spend the remainder of her daytime career chasing characters to mixed success that were as compelling and as fun to play as Raven was. And, you know, though she gave subsequent roles her all, particularly in the case of Brittany Peterson Love, the classic damsel in distress that Gabbett portrayed on NBC's late great Another World in the mid-'80s, and a character that Sharon has never been shy about admitting that she hated, wholly in spite of the fact that her work on the serial was often breathtaking and always fiercely alive, she found out that capturing lightning in a bottle more than once is a nearly impossible task. And by the time her third soap role, that of Melinda Kramer, in what was supposed to be a triumphant return to ABC Daytime on One Life to Live, ended with a whimper in 1989, uh, the universe already seemed to be tapping on Sharon's shoulder and dropping big hints that her path was about to take a major left turn. And boy, did it ever. Gabbett switched coasts in the early 90s and largely gave up acting entirely to care for her autistic daughter and to re-engage in what was going to be her original career path, nursing, before her life took a glamour-filled decade-long detour. You know, that move helped Sharon to connect with herself and with her strengthening sense of spirituality on a deeper and more profound level, a painstaking journey she chronicled step-by-step in her riveting 2002 memoir, From the Raven to the Dove. Sharon has just self-published her second book, a masterful take on the links between metaphysics and spirituality, entitled Spiritual Magic. And by the oddest of coincidence, I managed to make contact with her just prior to the book's release. I had had Gavit's name on the brain for several months prior to that, after stumbling across a copy of her first book, and after having enjoyed a handful of scenes of her aforementioned brilliant work on Another World earlier in the year. 
Not long ago, my pal Roger Newcomb and his fabulous team at the website We Love Soaps compiled a list of the 50 greatest actresses in soap history. And there was Sharon, deservedly so, right in the mix of all that greatness. And I found myself fascinated by the fact that she had seemingly dropped completely off the grid once her one life stint wrapped two and a half decades ago, never to be heard from again. And as has happened here in this forum with other guests who had seemingly dropped off the earth, I became transfixed by the idea that I should be the one to try to track her down and find out what she's been up to in all these years since she stepped out of the spotlight's glare. You know, it took a fair bit of detective work, but I did indeed manage to find Ms. Gabbett, and I wrote her a rambling two-page letter, uh, teeming with my classic fanboy frothing, in which I basically begged her for an interview. She wrote back almost immediately with a very enthusiastic yes, and we were off to the races. You know, I wasn't entirely sure what to expect when I got Sharon on the phone, uh, having read her memoir, which sort of pays a passing glance to her soap days before delving into what she will no doubt tell you is the real story of her life, uh, I wasn't sure how keen she would be on reliving her glory days as one of the greatest actresses to ever grace the hallowed halls of daytime television. What I found instead was exactly what I had hoped for when I set out on this mission, a woman who was refreshingly forthright, compellingly candid about both her failings and her triumphs, and ready to talk about her scandalously soapy past and her spectacularly spirit spirit present. <laughs> so let's, so let's kind of set the table here. Where were you born? Where were you raised? Where'd you go to stuff out of the way? I was born in Fort Wayne, Indiana, but moved early on, I think I was in third grade, to New Haven, Indiana, which is a little farm town in Indiana where my mother had a farm. Actually, she grew up on a farm. And uh, I went to Bishop Dwanger High School and then went to Indiana Purdue Regional Campus, Purdue, where I got a nursing degree, but also was very interested in the theater. So I did a lot of theater work. As a matter of fact, it took me three and a half years to get a two-year nursing degree because <laughs> I was doing so much theater. But I'm glad I stuck with it. Sure. It was a really great theater department. and. I had the opportunity to grow and do a lot of things. We won the uh, National College Theater Festival and got to perform in the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C. I mean, it was a really good theater. So from there, I got a scholarship to Cornell University for an MFA program in acting, and that was quite amazing. I spent two years there, then went straight to New York City, and within a year, (laughs) I had Raven. Wow. So, hey, I was really fortunate. (laughs) You know, I know from your book that it was your intention to, you know, kind of become a nurse and sort of live that life. But, but uh, you know, just from reading yeah, between the lines. Yeah, I came very close. I came very <laughs> close to marrying my hometown honey, uh, who's yeah. a lawyer, and just being a nurse in Fort Wayne, Indiana, doing community theater. It's funny how your paths change and sure. drastically change your life. Well, you know, it, it seems like somewhere inside you, you always kind of knew that you were going to be an entertainer or an actress of some sort. I mean, it seems like you always knew you had that gift inside you. You know, I did, and it started with my dad, who was in a country western band and played guitar in the house all the time and taught me guitar. And I used to actually sit in the upstairs hallway. I'd close all the doors, and it would make kind of an echo chamber, and I would sit there and sing songs and play guitar at night, and actually all my brothers and sisters, I had eight of them, you know, you'd think they'd be annoyed, but they actually liked it, which, you know, told me, well, maybe I'm good. <laughs> so, but I'm lucky that it worked out, because it doesn't for everyone who... Sure, and you know, you, you, yeah. you know, you wonder how, 
uh, a girl from an Indiana farm town has the temerity to dream of things like Hollywood and television success. And, <laughs> and uh, you know, I mean, what, tell me what that stuff means to an Indiana girl. I think for me, this is what was so bizarre about my life is, sure, I, I loved being an entertainer and I took dance and loved to sing and all that, but it never dawned on me in my wildest dreams that I sure. would ever go to New York City or, you know, do anything in Hollywood, ever. It was just the way my path fell together. It's like one thing led to another, led to another, and the next thing I knew, there I was in New York, terrified. (laughs) (laughs) Terrified at first. I didn't leave my apartment for two weeks, (laughs) except to go out and get sandwiches and beer, you know. And I was reading, I wrote this in my book, my first book, I was reading uh, The Lord of the Rings for about the fifth time, you know. And then finally I realized, like Frodo, I had to get out of my little hobbit village and go out and explore the world. So it just kind of happened. It's not something that I said I am. This is where I'm going. But once and I got there, wow. Sure. Then it was shock, being a Hoosier in New York City. What a shock. <laughs> and so was was Edge of Night your big breaker? Was there, was there a moment before that that kind of set you on your path? As I way? think there were a couple big breaks. The first one being that Indiana Purdue Theater that I studied at was so good. That was a break because I really learned a lot there. And then I would say the biggest break I had was getting the scholarship to Cornell because that got me out of Indiana. And from there it was just a few hours to New York. And everyone at Cornell that studied there, they picked six of us each year for this program. So it was a very small program. And then everyone went to New York. That's just what you did. So I think Cornell was my biggest break in that it just got me out of Indiana and then showed me what was out there. And, and I'm then, sure I'm sure uh, it gave you the confidence to to think that you could go to New York and make it because you had exactly. uh, verifiable proof that people who walked that path before you had made it. In my class, there were only six of us, but two of my classmates were Catherine Hicks, who did super super well in movies, and then she did a TV series, Heaven Seventh Heaven, Seventh, yeah, sure. and then Ethan Phillips, who was my castmate, who ended up playing Neelix on Star Trek Voyager, as well as quite a few other things. So it was, a, it was a good class. But then, you know, my work in, in New York at first, it was really hard, but I did some things, but Raven was my first break. And what a first break that was, huh? <laughs> what a character. And, and tell, me how, tell me how that came into your life. I mean, did you have an agent that put you up for it, or did you go to a casting, casting call, or what was the... What was the uh, scenario well, for you for you getting that part? Back in the 70s, this is like the mid to late 70s, there was a whole routine that you went through if you wanted to get work. You had to get an agent first. So in order to get an agent first, you have to be seen in a play. So then you have to go to these plays. And if you're not in any of the uh, unions, then it has to be a non-union play. So you get the trade papers, you look for plays, you sign up, and there's usually thousands of people there. And then you get in a play, then you invite agents to come, and luckily Catherine Hicks had already sort of made it. She was already on Ryan's Hope, I think, by then. So, you know, she turned me on to her agent, which was great. So I got an agent to come see me in a play, and then he liked me and signed me up. And I think I went up for two soaps before Raven. And I, I was so nervous, so it took me three attempts before I was not nervous <laughs> enough to, <laughs> to 
to do the audition. So Raven was the third one. So that was really good. So thank you, Kathy Hicks. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and was your family supportive of, of all of this, or did they think you were insane oh. for even thinking that this was going to, you know? They uh, were totally supportive. They were totally supportive, but I don't think anybody really thought that it would happen that fast or was prepared for what did happen because soaps were really big. This is at the time, you know, eventually when Love in the Afternoon became you bet. such a huge, huge thing, and ABC in particular. So I don't think anyone was prepared for how you know, big soap operas were going to be. But the great thing was my mother watched The Edge of Night when I was a little girl. I remember The Edge of Night, that old one, you know, the black and white one on TV where my mother watched it for years and years. So that was really cool that I got on that one in particular. So, yeah, my family was just thrilled. And through the years then, I had enough money to bring everybody out to New York. I just did it, wow. like, two people at a time. But I would fly them to New York for the first time and really show them a good time. And it was very, very exciting for everyone. How fun. You know, you mentioned this. You were a signature star on ABC Daytime at a time when ABC Daytime was – one of the most powerful and most recognizable brands in all of network television. I mean, I'm, I'm not even sure yep. people today can grasp the enormity of what ABC Daytime was in the early 1980s, not just because Luke of... Luke and Laura. You bet. Say Luke you, you and know, Laura. <laughs> not just because of General Hospital and, and its Susan massive Lucci. success. And Lucci. <laughs> but, you know, yeah. also the rest of the soap lineup and also Family Feud. I mean, I read once that Family Feud, at its peak, was the single most profitable series on all of television. I mean, ABC was... You know, coming in like Jesse James with 245s every single day. They were literally printing money with that entire lineup. And, that is uh, so true. You know, yeah. I, I, you know I, did you have any sense back then of the level of success? I mean, you know, I, I, I'm sure the fans went crazy for any of you guys whenever you made personal appearances or any, any of that stuff. But did you have any clue of the scale of how big the work you were turning in as an actress was being accepted and embraced by the audience? You don't know until I started doing personal appearances at malls. There was a couple from New Jersey that, and I can't think of their names, darn it, but they would take, you know, a handful of ABC stars and go around and book malls or big places, and we would all make appearances and answer questions and stuff. And it blew me away. <laughs> we were rock stars back then. I mean, there were thousands and thousands of screaming people, and I, you know, that, that was really a surprise to me because we spend so much of our time in the studio, and you have to live a really, like, a monk's life because you're going to get up at the crack of dawn you bet. before anybody is up and be in that studio, and you've got to look good. And you're going to be there for 12 hours, 14 hours, 16 hours. You're going to be there for a long time, and then you're going to go home and eat dinner and go back to sleep so you can get up and do it again. And if you've got a really big part. Somewhere in there you've got to learn your line. Yeah, all 40 pages of them, you know. (laughs) So it's not like we got out that much. So when when I did go on personal appearances, it was amazing. Plus, I did get the opportunity to do two family feuds one of which The Edge of Night won the whole thing. <laughs> and, and I also got to do a love boat. The love boat was really big, too. I was really lucky, boy, really lucky. And it was you know, it's, fun. It's so funny you say that because uh, a friend of mine recently wrote a book about One Life to Live, and uh, in it he gets a story from Bobby Woods, your friend Bob Woods. 
about going to a mall appearance with Colleen Zink, I think, and there were like, I don't know, 15 or 20,000 people there, and Bob was wondering who else was there, and he didn't realize that they were all there to see him. Yep. He was thinking some rock star was coming by or something, and and, uh, they were all there to see him. Well, he's such a modest, sweet guy anyway. Of course he would think that. But he was also one of the major stars. Everybody loved Bob Woods. Oh, my God. But, yeah, it is true. So, you know, uh, for those of us like me who, uh, you know, Edge of Night was a little bit before my time. But, uh, you know, for those of us like me who may be listening to this and know you from your later work, give me a sense Uh of who Raven was and and, uh, how she fit into the canvas and, and how she evolved over the years. Just give me a sense of Raven. When I first stepped in, someone else had played Raven, but she was only there for a year, Juanine Clay. She was only there for one year and decided to go to Hollywood, and here again I was lucky. One year she's there, she leaves and leaves this character to me. She's the quintessential bad girl. She's rich. She has no sense of responsibility for anyone else. All she thinks about is herself. In the first couple years, I mean, just fabulous, you know, typical soap plots of trying to get a rich husband and marrying someone while having an affair with someone else and then getting pregnant and then discovering her husband was sterile. I mean, you know, all And then he drives off a cliff. I mean, just one thing after another. So Raven was the bad girl for sure. Henry Slusser was the, um, the writer then, and he told me that he followed my lead. It's, I actually made her a little bit more evil than Juanine had. Juanine made her sort of kind of, you know, Oh, just kind of a, a California girl, a little, just a little bit more ditzy, whereas I just really made her out now evil. She knew exactly <laughs> what she was doing, and she did it anyway. She was just and how did, so how did you know that you had that in, did you know that you had that, that, those qualities <laughs> in you? I mean, you know, coming from Indiana, and I'm sure being a sweet uh-huh. girl, how did you know that, that you could reach down deep in yourself and pull that out <laughs> and be convincing? You know why? Because it was fun. I was such a good girl. I mean, I really was. I was very naive and from the farms of Indiana. And so it was so much fun just to play the opposite of that. And I developed that. And it's not like, you know, you have to be evil or anything. I mean, uh, it's just that I got a kick out of it. I got a kick out of making her just as wicked and horrible as she could possibly be. It was just really fun for me to do something like that. But then, over the years, she actually began to turn more into me. She was always selfish, and, but she, she, a sense of humor came in. And I think it started really when Lark and Malloy joined the show. Sure. We had so much fun. He was such a good actor and such a hoot. And we just had so much fun. The whole crew there, the cast, the crew, everybody... We were having so much fun that everything lightened up. I found my comedic side, and actually Raven and Henry Slusser told me this too. He said, you keep making me do a 180-degree turn with my writing because you keep bringing these new things. And she began to be impossible but fun and delightful at the same time. So, and, uh, you, know, I th- you know, I think that happens naturally on soaps just because, as you say, the hours are yeah. so long, and... And uh, the material at times can be a bit repetitive and circular, <laughs> just because you're, you know, you're you're trying to advance plot, but not by too much each day. And so, yes. I think naturally the actors become the characters they play, and the characters become the actors they play, and this weird kind of symbiotic thing happens. That's exactly right. You know, just a quip here. It is true. Sometimes the scripts would be very tedious. And- <laughs> 
So you knew when, a, you know, if you were like playing things maybe too ponderously, sure. like you'd get the knock on the door from the director who gives you your notes right before taping. And sometimes my note, all of us, he would just knock at the door, you'd open it up and he'd go, if you can't make it good, make it fast. <laughs> <laughs> or sometimes he would just say louder and faster. In other words, just keep the show moving, just keep it moving. You know, don't ponder on anything. We know yeah. this isn't, you know, the Emmy-nominated yeah. script here. Yeah. So you know, if you can't make it good, just talk fast. <laughs> and that was really funny. But yeah, she did develop into, you know, it was it was Scarlett O'Hara. I got to play Scarlett O'Hara in a way. And Scarlett, you loved and hated her. She would do things that were infuriating, but down deep you really loved their courage and spunk and passion. So that was really fun. You know, you mentioned the gorgeous Larkin Malloy, whom I know well from, uh, you know, All My Children Leader. And, he was everybody's you know. leading man. <laughs> so he had you, the best actresses in the business, didn't he? You know, the, you know that's, that's the thing. He, this is an actor who never really got his own due in terms of, you know, recognition of his talent, but... This man held his own opposite you, opposite the likes of Kim Zimmer, uh, Susan Lucci, Susan Pratt, and, you know, that doesn't happen by accident. That's right. He's the best. He was the best. I just connected with him on Facebook after so many years. I love Facebook. So I just found him <laughs> and sent him a bunch of pictures I have. So that was fun. It was fun to connect with him again. The thing about Edge that was special is that it was a half-an-hour show when there weren't too many of those left. So that meant that we didn't have quite the long days. They weren't 12 to 15. You know, they might have been 8 to 10. But the good news was that an hour soap is so long that you have to, you spend a lot of time in your dressing room, and then you just get called down set by set. We're on the edge of night because it was a half an hour, and you may not know this, but we put all the sets in a circle, and we shot it like it were live in a half an hour. Wow. And it was so exciting. They did not want you to go up. You were supposed to try to save each other like you did in the theater. <laughs> and they would choreograph the cameras so that, you know, they would all be set on the sets and then they would cut from set to set. Then there would be a 90-second or a two-minute break for commercials and all the cameras would run to their next set and set up. Wow. And we shot it like it was live. So the good news about that was that everyone was on the set at the same time, and we watched each other's work. And then during those commercial breaks, if you did a great job, you got applause from your actors. And it was like, good job, you know, it was like it was wow. live. And then if you had a stupid scene, man, you got ridiculed, you know. It's like a big family. So we all got to know each other, and everybody was out there, and that was the special thing about it, because then when I went to the hour shows, there just wasn't quite the camaraderie, because sometimes you didn't even see other actors sure. who weren't on your set or in your scenes. You never saw them. The Edge of Night was a very, very special experience, for sure. I was listening to some of the actors from One Life to Live later, you know, in the later years before that show went off the air, they had moved to a film-like filming schedule where they would film episodes by set and sometimes episodes maybe 20 or 25 episodes apart. And so, you know, right. they, it obviously kept that show on the air, obviously. I mean, it helped with, you know, budgetary issues and what have you. But, you know, it, yes. it, it hurt the actors in terms of not really knowing how they fit within the arc of each episode and, you know, not really right. being able to interact with people who weren't in their immediate storyline because that's exactly. the only people they saw when they were working. 
But everybody was happy to be working, that's for sure. That's the sad thing to me about soaps going off the air. Because new actors, man, it's so much harder for them now. Because the uh, now, to even get a nighttime series, they're getting film stars for that. Soap operas, you know, there were lots of young new actors who were just coming into the business, and it was like a very highly paid apprenticeship where you could learn your craft and work, and it's very sad to see them all gone now. I never thought I'd see the day, actually. I'm surprised. And, you know, you wonder where the next crop of young talent is going to come from. Because you think yeah, of people or, like Meg Ryan, you think of people like Anne H, you think of people like uh, oh, you know, yeah. Sarah Michelle Gellar, Josh Dumel, who all came out of soaps and had that raw talent that was uh, honed and, and uh, uh, you know, sculpted with their time in daytime, and then they moved on to primetime and film and you know, great success in other parts of the business. And you wonder where this next crop of young talent is going to be able to hone their To craft. get that experience, exactly, because I'll tell you, I was trained on the stage. But when you start doing TV, it's a whole new ballgame. When you've got cameras there, and it's, it's a different style of acting, you know. And you've got to hit and marks, to, and you've got to, yeah. And learn all that dialogue, and you've got a bed scene, a very intimate bed scene, and then, you know, you look up, and there's five boom operators <laughs> hanging over you, like, you know, throwing gum at you, and God knows what else, you know. And also on the edge of night, we would have, because it's shot in New York, we would have often Broadway stars coming to play little parts. And, you know, it was hard for them. A lot of them were shaking and very nervous because they weren't used. I mean, you get maybe two rehearsals. You know, you run through it a couple of times. Okay, let's shoot. And they weren't used to that. So it was a really good apprenticeship. And you're right. I don't know where it's going to come from. And you know, I hope the same thing that happened to, say, pop music doesn't happen to acting, where it's, sure. you know, big stars coming in and, and just doing everything. But as you say, I mean, it seems like the only movies that are getting made anymore are superhero action flicks. And so the yeah. mature adult actors are coming to television in droves because that's where the material is. And so they're freezing out all of the trained television actors who, you know, made their livings for years and years yeah. doing that. And, and you just, it, it sets off kind of a chain reaction with the soaps going off and, you know, the influx of, of film stars to television. And it just kind of sets off a chain reaction. You've got a choice now on TV. It's competing against A-list or B-list movie actors or big names. Or reality shows. That's like your other choice. <laughs> I was actually just offered a reality show about a month ago. And it's some new reality show. I forget the name. But the premise is five or six soap opera women who were big in soaps. And they follow them around for a year trying to get work. Wow. And they can't get work. So they decide to produce and write their own soap. So I don't know if that's going to be made or not. But I just... I wasn't interested in a reality <laughs> show <laughs> because they really mostly just want you to look stupid. <laughs> but, you know, that's your choice. That's your choice. Sure. So, I feel really happy for Frances Fisher, my dear, dear, dear personal friend. She's the godmother of my daughter. But, you know, she just got a good series, Resurrection, which Resurrection, I've been yeah. run for a while. Yeah, it's so good. So good for her to hang in there and get something like that. You know, as I told you at the top here, you still have lots of fans out there. And, and uh, as I told you privately, Edge of Night was a little bit before my time, so I tossed up, uh, you know, a couple of, of uh, messages on some of the message boards just to get a sense of, you know, just to try to suss out what the true Edge fans might be interested in hearing more about from you. And 
And, uh, you know, I bet you can guess the two or three things that the vast majority of fans were interested in hearing more about. And, you know, I thought I might give you the space to either address it or not. The first thing I would say, 60 to 70% of the responses I got were in regard to the Dennis Parker situation, which I kind of sort of know the contours of, but not really the full story. But, you know, from what I understand, uh-huh. Dennis was an actor in several pornographic films prior to joining Edge, and, and uh-huh. uh, he developed AIDS during his time on the show back in a time when very few people even had a clue what that disease was. And It was shocking. It was shocking, and it t- I'm tearing up just thinking about it because it touched me very deeply and personally. Dennis Parker I worked with, and we loved him. He had a great sense of humor. He was a kind, wonderful man, and we had a blast. The cast loved him, and we had a really, really good time. And then there was another actor, Irving Lee, who played one of the uh, police officers. And then, of course, Joel Crothers, who was on the edge for many, many, many years, sure. playing Dr. Kavanaugh. And all three of them were beloved. So when AIDS hit, those three, and they all passed away. It was shocking. And then all the information started coming up. And so sure. Joel Crothers, I adore Joel. We were We were dear, dear friends. He'd been on for years and years, and he was on Dark Shadows. And uh, he told me the first day I was on, I was so scared. I was so nervous. I just shook. And I got through my scenes, and eventually, with work, I got better and better. And years later, after Raven became the great character that she did, Joel came up to me, and he said, you know, I was there your first day. And he said, (laughs) I turned to whoever I was with, and I said, she's never going to make it. And he said, I have to come up to you and apologize because <laughs> you did make it. And, you know, I didn't think you would. So, you know, we were great friends. And he moved to L.A. and he actually called me just a few days before he passed away. He was in the hospital and his wow. he was a Rhodes Scholar. He was stunningly good looking. He would, this is like the, the 80s disco days. And we would all go discoing at times. So Joel took me for a couple nights on the town that I'll never forget and took me to places <laughs> I would never have gone, you know, had I not known him. So uh, he called me just a few days before he passed away to say goodbye, and it was just so sweet and precious. But it was a shock. Nobody, you know, nobody had a clue to what was going on, but we were hit. And there were a lot of production companies and plays and, you know, that, you know, just Multiple members of the cast were just dropping like flies. It was horrible. Did you feel like Edge was unfairly targeted by the press in terms of their coverage of the early days of the crisis just because of the fact that so – because as you say, I'm sure that so many, of the, so many of the shows and so many of the productions were hit at the same time that you guys were. And I'm yeah. wondering if, yeah. if you felt that you guys were unfairly targeted just because of the, I guess, the higher profile of the, of you the know names what? that were – We didn't even pay attention to that. It's what happens when something really profound and deep within your heart happens to you. You gather with your beloveds and try to understand it. It doesn't matter what anybody else says. It's like it just was inconsequential. We knew the reality of the situation, and other people may have felt different. I was moving on to other aspects of my life, and I was very, very busy and hectic and kids and everything. So I wasn't in the middle of the press junket, you know, then. But I just didn't pay any attention to it, you know, because obviously the press was just looking for any way to talk about it. And 
you know how the press is in general. So I didn't pay any attention. But there may have been some people that did feel that way, but I just didn't pay attention to it. The number one question I got from fans was, Raven was apparently off the canvas for a number of months in the fall of 1979 and coming into early 1980. And a large number of people asked me if that was because you had left the show and decided to come back or if it was always intended that you would be gone for a while and then make a surprise reappearance. Nope, I left the show. I was on for two years. And my agent at the time thought it would be good for me to try to get something else that I had gotten the experience. Plus, at the time, I don't remember specifically what the storylines were, but I was just getting a little bored. You know, they seemed to be repetitive and nothing much was happening. I think that we're usually guaranteed two days a week, but I ended up working five for much of my career. But <laughs> but at that time, I remember I was only in and out maybe two days a week. And so I thought, you know, all right, I'm going to try something else. So I left the show. Okay. And I went to California to be with my boyfriend at the time. But... What happened, it was a personal thing. I ended up leaving that boyfriend for another boyfriend that I had met doing a play in New York, who I ended up marrying, Larry Joshua. And, you know, I was going through my own little soap opera, actually. So I left California. Imagine that. I left California, moved back to New York to be with Larry. And then I took dance classes and music lessons for six months. I had a blast. I took jazz dance classes, you know, with some of the best classes in New York City. Sure. And then uh, I ran out of money. Duh. So just about that time, Nick Nicholson, the producer of Edge of Night, called me personally. He said, Sharon, we loved you, and we want to bring Raven back. Again, here's the luck in my life, all right? Like, I just got to the place where I'm going, oh, boy, how am I going to pay next month's rent? And Nick calls me, and he goes, we want to bring you back, and I promise you I will make it worth your while because we have some great plans for Raven. And I'm like, okay, sounds great. So he said, let's not use an agent. Let's just go to a lawyer, and let's do this together because we want to keep you for a long time. Wow. Yeah, so Nick and I struck a deal, and I went back, and boy, oh, boy, was it (laughs) – we just – took off then. This was like about, this must have been about 1980. You know, evidently it was a great shock to the fans because, you know, this was the day before Internet spoilers and, you know, before the press and and all that fun stuff. And it must have been a great shock when they saw you walk (laughs) back on screen. They did it great. I tell you, when I came back, the first three years were just a whirlwind of one fabulous story after another. Oh, my God, I had so much fun. Yeah, I do remember how I showed up because Logan Swift at the time, the guy whose baby I had, was about to marry April, the sweet little girl, and I showed up and ruined everything. It was just so great. And then from there, we, you know, just one great story after sure. another. So that's what happened. I was taking dance lessons and having my own little boyfriend <laughs> drama. And then luckily Nick called me and I came back and... I'm glad I did, yeah. You know, you mentioned, you mentioned uh, Henry Schlesser, who was Edge's head writer for a good chunk of its run, and, and yeah. uh, he was replaced in the last couple of years of the show's run by Lee Sheldon. And, of course, you know, as we said, this was back in the day before there were Internet spoilers and before you know, the soap press was running much news in terms of you know, their magazines. Uh, right. you know, many people wanted to know how you, how you and the other actors felt about that change and about how the tone of the show itself changed in Schlesser's absence. It was really hard 
Of course, we had nothing to do with it. The, the thing was, uh, Edge's ratings were, uh, since it was a half an hour show and it wasn't an ABC show, it was a Procter & Gamble show, it set us yep. a little bit apart from the rest of the ABC shows and put a little more pressure on us. And I think the ratings were falling. Everything was going through big changes. CBS was galloping up. I think it was CBS with Bold and Beautiful and those others. You know, they were getting stronger, and the competition was getting heated. And so the producer, you know, made a choice to what he thought was upgrading the show. He brought on Lori Loughlin, some young people, and just thought that it needed to be updated a little. But, you know, the edge of night, the thing about it was that it was actually a takeoff of the old detective murder mystery, and that was what gave it its flavor, and that's where Henry was so good. So they brought in all, you know, the new and let Henry go, and it was very sad for us. I personally loved Henry, but I also wanted the show to do well, and I didn't want it to be canceled. So it's like, okay, I'll just have to trust the producers and, you know, that they're trying to make this better. We had a hard time with Lee because it was different. Just to not shoot him down, you know, it's anytime you make a big change in anything, there's going to be a lot of people complaining. Sure. So things changed and it was different. And um, Especially something like soaps, which kind of thrive on uh, uh, continuity and, and uh, sameness. I personally think, you know, I applaud them trying to update the show and make it more exciting, but I think looking back, the show's charm was that it was kind of old-fashioned and kind of hokey. We still had that music, you know, before the the tag, you know, the big soap music. We still used it, and it was hilarious, you know, and we still made those big faces right before the end of the scene. You know, it was classic. It was classic, and... I think that that's really what gave The Edge its charm, and we tried to update it, but really couldn't compete with the hour shows because they had more money and more network clout. Actually, all of Procter & Gamble's shows were a little bit more old-fashioned. And, uh, other and than it should another, be said that you kind of fought on ABC to get clearances in all the markets and you know uh, good time slots and what have you. You didn't, have, you didn't have a permanent time slot the way that General Hospital did and you know some of the other hour shows. You were kind that of totally you know, tossed true. on. You were kind of tossed on by each affiliate uh, wherever they happen to have a space for you. And the interesting thing is, now that I look back, is that that is totally correct. We had to fight for that time slot, and since it was like 4, 4.30, right before the nightly news would come, what began to happen was we started getting dumped from affiliates for little local talk shows. So the talk show, which now talk shows and reality shows rule daytime in game shows, so that was happening actually back then and ultimately caused the demise of The Edge of Night because affiliates just found that it was cheaper to put on their own local talk show than to pick us up. So, yeah, the, the, the thing with Lee just didn't quite work out. Plus, I, I, both Larkin and I felt that the sting of our characters got lost and everyone was disappointed in the finale. I don't know if you heard about the finale, but the very last scene was just so weird. <laughs> you know, there's like Larkin and I are in the living room, Sky and Raven are in the living room, and the doorbell rings, and we go and answer the door and look out, and they shoot our faces looking out, and then that was it. <laughs> and it was supposed to be, oh, a new adventure, but we were like, what? 
this is the last <laughs> show of 29 years or however long that thing went on. You know, it's just really weird. I guess they were hoping that someone else would pick it up and the, sh- the uh, story would continue. I'd... They were. They were. But it uh, didn't happen. And, you know, it was it was very sad for me, too, because I had just delivered my first baby, actually, Jasmine. And I took a two-week break after delivering before I came back on. And while I was on that two-week, that's when I got the call from Nick that the show would go off the air. And the last one would wow. be in December. So that was... I had such joy with having my first child and then got the news that it was going off. It was kind of sad, sure. very sad. And was that something you could sort of see coming, or was it something that took all of you by surprise? I think we saw it coming, but we kept hoping, no, sure. that we'd just squeak by. So it was a little bit of both, yeah. And, of course, you would go on to One Life many years later, but a little birdie told me that after Edge of Night folded, you were offered a part on One Life that you were very... The biggest uh, mistake of my life, Brandon. <laughs> it was the biggest mistake of my career, I will say right now. <laughs> I was offered two roles, one on One Life, and I would have gotten to play opposite Bob Woods, and it was a remote in Venice. <laughs> it was the Countess, Countess somebody, and you know what? I stuck with Procter & Gamble because I'm that kind of loyal little Midwestern yeah. girl. It was out of loyalty. I just thought, oh, Procter & Gamble has been so nice to me. And it was the wrong choice, I tell you, because I talked to Bob years later, Bob Woods, and he said, you know, the woman that they ended up casting was just horrible, and they had to fire her, and she was just a nightmare, and... Oh my God! What fun it would have been! I I could have maybe I would have still been on till the end. Who knows? How funny! But you know that's one of those things you look back and it's like oh ouch sure. darn it. <laughs> and then I will say I was very appreciative that when Another World didn't work out, I don't know if you heard the turbulent way I left that show. You know it was it was just really hard. It just wasn't working out for me. It was shot in Brooklyn. I had a new baby. I was pregnant. And while I was pregnant, they gave me the storyline that I was being abused by my husband. Yes, and, yes, and, oh, and you were raped. And so, and you were, yes, yes, so I was having a, literally a nervous breakdown, and I'm <laughs> seven months pregnant. And I was crying to my husband, a native New Yorker, Larry, Larry Joshua, and he called the producer of Another World and said, I want her off the show now. You get her out. You write her off that show now. <laughs> and so they did. They swiftly wrote me off. It was, I think, at least six weeks before my contract was officially up. Wow. And I had the baby, and I took six months off. And then when I was ready to go to work, I was lucky with my reputation where I just I made an appointment with the producer at One Life to Live. God, what was his name? Paul Rausch. Paul Rausch, who also has a raucous reputation. <laughs> but I have to... <laughs> I don't know if you know about him, but you know what? I, I do. God bless, yes. God bless him, though, because I made an appointment <laughs> with him. I walked into his office, and I said, I need a job, and he gave me one. Wow. And that was really great, and, you know, I did have a lot of fun with Melinda. You know, I had very wild storylines and some fun stuff, but I think that the problem was walking in and saying, just write me on, as opposed to having, you know, the writers say, let's create a character and take a while to do that. Because sure. the character really, yeah, they just didn't know what to do with her. They didn't know who to put me with or what to do with her. And, you know, I didn't know what they wanted, and so it just never really developed 
to anything. We spoke via email, and you are so right that I yes, well, wish Robin know. Strasser had been on. <laughs> well, that's the whole thing. You know, Robin, a, a huge part of the reason why that character failed to get any traction, I think, was the absence of Dorian on that canvas. I'm, you know, because other than Cassie. Uh, Melinda yes. didn't really have that familial anchor on the show that characters almost always need no, in that I had genre no one. to, to uh, sustain any any sort of uh, you know long term viability and and I'm sure right. you recognize that was a big problem pretty quickly. I did, and they tried to stick me with a lot of different people. There was the resident doctor. They had me go out on a couple of dates with him, but we you know it just wasn't the right mix. And then they had me with Jim DePiva, but yep. you know they had a, other things for him. Although Paul admitted to me that he wished that those sexual fantasies had been with Jim DePiva's character instead. And I said, yeah. But, but, you know, they were trying, and it's true, I didn't have an anchor there. I love Robin Strasser, and I love her work, and I think we would have had such oh, an incredible you two would, you two would have set, time. You two would have set Manhattan on fire. On fire. <laughs> the funny thing is that she ended up moving to California and buying a house in Ojai which is about 70 miles north of Los Angeles. And I ended up living in Ojai for about 17 years. Wow. So we almost, yeah, she, I don't, she didn't stay there long. She ended up moving back to New York and recreating yes. her character again. But, you know, we kind of crossed paths in Ojai. So interesting, <laughs> huh? Although I will say, again, this is how fate works. In 1997, let's see, I left the show in 89. So this is, what, eight years later. 1997, I'm in California, and I get a call. And they're bringing Melinda back because she's going to yes. have a daughter, and they want me to reprise the role. Yes. Well, I would have done it in a second, except I had just bought tickets. I had paid for this three-week trip to Egypt. I had put $10,000 out, you know, and I was wow. about to leave for Egypt for a three-week trip. So I said to them, can't you, you know, set it back a little bit? And they went, no, no, we have to do it now. So too bad I just missed playing Melinda in 19... I don't know how long that character stayed on then. Were you watching uh, it, was, it then? Yeah, it was only a short time. Uh, Claire Labine had come uh -huh. in as head writer, and they finally decided to dig into the history of the mentally damaged Kramer women, and uh, they brought Melinda back <laughs> just, just, for a, just for a short time to kind of, to kind of kick off the whole storyline about how... Uh, you know Dorian's parents, and you know the whole history of of that of uh -huh. that you know uh, the sisters and you know the family, and and so it was only for a few weeks. But man, it would have been fantastic. No, I think if I went back, if I went back, I think she would have stayed. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, again, it didn't work out, and uh, you know that's entertainment. You know, I, I can just see you looking around that show in 1988 and seeing. The great Andrea Evans and seeing Fiona Hutchinson and fe seeing uh, you know uh, this new girl Jessica Tuck that they brought in, who was a brilliant combination oh, of you know Street I Fighter Dixon and, and, and yeah. classic soap heroine. You know, I can just I can see you clear as day you looking around <laughs> at that canvas and thinking, Jesus, there are no fewer than four of us occupying the yeah. same lane of traffic on this show. And and you know, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I can only imagine That's what must true. have been going through your mind because by that point you had been around for eight or nine years and. And yeah. surely you had a firm grasp of, of how things worked in soaps. Yes, I did understand it. You know, the thing was, is I, I never, they never called me in, the writers or Paul, to talk about it. No one ever said anything to me because I would have been willing to 
redefine myself. I think I'm a good enough actress that I could have redefined myself in some way. I didn't have to play Raven again or a character like that. And if I had been brought in in the conversation, you know, we could have devised, let's rethink this character and come up with something that fits in the shell. Sure. You know, so I think that would have helped at that time. But the actors weren't brought in. And, you know, I understand that, too. You're doing a show a day. You're doing a show a day. So, you know, the the car moves very fast. You know, sometimes they just don't have time. But I do think I could have offered something there and, but I just needed to uh, to have a conversation and rethink the character into something that would have been unique. And you mentioned another world. I mean, you know, do you think that that if Mary Page Keller had decided to stay in the role of Sally Frame, that that uh, Brittany would have taken better hold on the Another World canvas, or or do you think that? I mean, you know, taking nothing away from Taylor Miller at all, but you know, she's a dynamite actress. But you know, it seemed to me that yeah. whatever momentum of that triangle had going just kind of came to a screeching halt whenever Taylor assumed that role. And again, it's it's nothing at all to do with her talent as an actor, but you know, she was clearly not yeah. right for that role, and it couldn't help but yeah. affect how that storyline progressed and played out on screen. Is that is that fair? Part of it, but I also think that the way that character was designed from the beginning had some problems. I loved it because she gave me a chance to do something really different. And I believe, and I've never said this before, but I think some of my work when she was deaf and getting her voice back was the best work I ever did on No question question about it. Better than anything else I've ever done is Raven or anything. That was some really good acting work, and I felt very proud of it. But what happened, partially because Mary Page was just so incredibly stunning and delightful and good. And the two of them, I think they're still married, aren't they? Her and Thomas Ian Griffith, I think they're still married. They were just so in love and such sure. had such good chemistry. Yeah. And what um, a fantastic couple. I mean, what a great-looking couple on screen. Oh, they my kind of, they God. They kind of popped I, on screen. I have to see their kids. Uh, um, <laughs> it must be gorgeous. But I think that Brittany then kind of became, you know, it was a bummer character. Like, she was never going to be able to butt into that energy. Sure. So that she kind of became like a loser. And then just the way things happened, she was a victim. It was very difficult for me because I was not used to playing the victim, and I would much prefer <laughs> to play the bitch because they're a, they're a lot more fun. I mean, you have to cry practically every day, you know. It's like, oh, my God. And I think that she became... People just didn't like her because she was just so much of a victim. And then the they changed producers like three times in the two sure. years I was there. And one of the producers was like, okay, your character isn't likable because they don't want you messing up with that relationship. So we're going to make you even more a victim because on soaps, if you're an even bigger victim, then they love you more. And so they, oh, my God, they beat that poor character into the ground. You know, it, it was like... So I think it was just a matter of let's just, you know, end this whole thing right now, please. <laughs> this is this is not working. But, you know, but, looking back on that show now, I mean, uh, you know, on that era of the show's run, it's astounding to me, the talent. You know, you look at Vicki Windham, you look at Linda Dano, Anna Stewart, Ellen Wheeler, uh, you, yeah. Denise Alexander, Nancy Frangion. I mean, you know, even though that show was sort of flying under the radar in terms of industry buzz and network support, and yet yeah. each member of that ensemble was more brilliant than the last. I mean, going all the way down the list. They had some very, very powerful actresses on that show, for sure. 
and again, loved them all. They were all very supportive and very sweet. Linda Dano gave me the name of her shrink, God bless her, because I sure needed it then. <laughs> I was like, oh. She said, here, here, honey. You know, she was just that kind. Linda Dano would yeah. do anything for anyone. Here, can I dress you? Can I find you a hat? Can I give you a shrink? What can I do? Right? You know, it's so funny. She's become a great friend of this show over the years. She's been on here six or seven times. And, and Oh, I uh, love her. Tell her I love her if you talk to her again. I love her. You know, I've, her, I've, her. I've never met her, but I feel like we're old friends because we've had some great conversations here. And, and yeah. uh, you know, she wouldn't, she wouldn't know me if she passed me on the street, but, but I uh-huh. feel like we're old friends. So it's, it's very She's funny. She's a that very you, warm, sweet woman. You bet. Yeah, no question about it. <laughs> You know, for my money, uh, there was never a more riveting or fascinating behind-the-scenes character than Paul Roush, as we talked about. And, and, <laughs> and, you know, every time I get anybody in here who worked with him in any capacity, I always make sure to ask them about the, about the Paul Roush experience, and I would love to hear your thoughts about working with him. Actually, truth be told, it was only those two years, and he, I didn't have that much experience with him because I – Maybe it was because I had heard so many stories, I kind of hid. (laughs) I kind of just stayed out of his way. He was definitely a very powerful man who had very definitive thoughts about how he wanted to do things. And I had heard so many stories about, God, all kinds of things from drinking and locking himself in the bathroom and they fired him and he refused to leave. Did you hear those stories? I forget what show, a Procter & Gamble show, where he was fired and they came to throw him out and he locked himself in a room or something. I don't even know if they were true, but man, this man brought the stories with him for sure. And so he was a little bit scary. I do know that I had just one, you know, I, I gathered my strength and I had one incident with him where they were throwing me with everybody and nothing was seeming to work. So I been in business a long time. I have ideas. So sure. I wrote a <laughs> I wrote a brief synopsis about a storyline that could have brought Robin Strasser back because it was about Melinda going back to when Robin slammed the piano down on her finger. She was a concert pianist and Robin's character slammed the piano lid down and crushed her fingers and ended her career or something. I don't know. But it was like going back to that time, and I wrote a little synopsis of maybe a storyline that might get Melinda involved again, and I gave it to him, and I never heard a thing about it. <laughs> I never heard a thing from him again. Wow. And, you know, not long after that, I was out. <laughs> so I guess maybe he didn't like actors. Suggest well, you know, my understanding is that he and Robin had quite a few uh, tete-a-tetes, let's say. <laughs> so my understanding I was I think that he that liked to fight. I think he respected me for barging in there and saying, give me a job, and that's why he gave me one. But I think he would have liked me to fight more with him, but I just wasn't into that then, you know. I, uh, it was like, just let me do my job, and I just didn't want to get involved in the drama. Let me do my job and get sure. out of here and be with my family. But, yes, he was a character. He was definitely a character, again, but I can't say anything really bad about him because he gave me a job, and you know that's sure. big. I appreciate that. I'm very grateful that I had those two years. You know, you mentioned in your book that sometime after your One Life stint ended, you were up for a recast role on another New York soap, and that yes. you, uh, at least internally, viewed that as your last shot in the genre. Uh, you know, of course, you don't have to reveal anything about about uh, what role that might have been, but you have to know that. I was kind of running through in my own mind the list of female roles that came up for grabs in that particular time frame. And, 
and uh, you know, I would kill to know uh, what role it was, or at least which soap it was. You don't have yes, to reveal um, anything you don't want to, but no, uh, it's you know, okay. <laughs> it was Procter and Gamble, and now this is where Procter and Gamble was very nice to me. Actually, this is after One Life. I left One Life, and then within a month, I was, you know, going to get a new agent and start over. And within a month or two, I found myself pregnant again. It was a surprise pregnancy. So it's like, oh, okay. Well, no soaps for a while. (laughs) So I had my third little girl, and she turned out to have some problems. I mean, she has autism, so there were some issues. And so I was tied up with family for a while, and then Procter & Gamble, not another world, as the world turns, the producer called me and said, what's her name, who's the big lead on that show? You know, the name who'd been there forever. Uh, she was pregnant with her third child, and he wanted to know if I could come stand in in case she had to go. I was pregnant, too, actually, at that time. We were both pregnant, but I was less pregnant. And he wanted me to, he wanted me to stand in for her just in case, because he said, no, wow. you know, I can't think of anyone else who could do it. And she was like, uh, what's her name? Darn it. You're not talking about Colleen Zink, are you? Yes, Colleen Zink. Okay. Thank you. Wow. He's like, I can't think of anyone else who could fill her shoes, so please, you Holy know. Cow. And I said, and they paid me a lot of money. And I went in and just, you know, hung around just in case sure. she went into labor. Then I would finish the show. <laughs> so I did that. That was very nice of them. So then after I had the baby and about a year later, the producer calls me back. And someone, it was as the world turns, but I'm sorry I don't remember the character. But she was a beloved character who was leaving the show. And she might have left it before and came back. She's one of those who left and came back and left and came back. And she was like a heroine, strong-willed, might have been some kind of a detective or something. I don't remember. Yeah, maybe it was, it, was, it had to have been Margot uh, Margo Hughes. Possibly. I, I, do, I really don't remember. But she left and they wanted a replacement. And so they called me to come in and test. Wow. And I tested, and, you know, I just wasn't right. They gave it to someone else who didn't last. Yeah, it was Ellen Dolan, and then, and then she left because they had just worn her out. I mean, they had given her a hugely intense storyline, and she was just worn out. And they gave it to Glenn oh. O'Connor, and she lasted maybe a year. And then oh. they, in, they enticed Ellen to come back, and Ellen played it for the rest of the run. Wow. Well, then somewhere in there they offered it to me. It might have been before Ellen Dolan or after. I'm not sure which. Wow. But I think that if you say they wore her out, you know, I had a new baby. It was my third baby, and she was having problems, and the producer knew that, and maybe they were doing me a favor. Sure. Because you know, I and, wasn't and, at a point that I needed to be worn out then. I had, you know. <laughs> I, the character was a detective, and she had gone out on a stakeout or something, and she had been raped. The uh, The rapist had been infected with HIV, and so uh, oh Margot thought for a time that she had contracted <laughs> HIV from this incident, and, and it was a, it right. was a very emotional storyline, and, and Ellen was nominated for an Emmy that year, but you know, at the end of that, she was just completely worn out and, and decided to right. walk, and, and so they recast right. for a year, and then that didn't work out, and they enticed Ellen to come back, so that, was, right. that would have been amazing, though, for you. I mean, that would have been, that would have been uh-huh. perfect for you. Well, it didn't happen, but, and when it didn't, you know, my husband had been pestering me to move to California because work was drying up in New York at that time. It really was, especially film. And my husband was doing a lot of film. And he had just done, or what maybe was doing at the time, Cop Rock, Stephen Bochco's sure. infamous 
cop rock. Of course, that that would be the one that my husband would get the lead in, right? Like, I think it's like listed in the top five worst yeah. nighttime series ever, right? Yeah, it's supposed it's supposed to be this huge imaginative hit, and then it and lands with a thud, right. and after thirteen weeks it, they yank it off the air and it's over. I think they only shot eleven, actually. Wow. But you know, he he gets the lead in this one, right? So. He really was good in it, but that's the way it goes. So, you know, at that time, I think after that soap fell through, you know, I realized, okay, I got three kids. I have a child that's got issues, you know. let's I'll move to California and let him look for work for a while and let me deal with these children. So sure. that's what I did. And, and in your yeah. book, you make it sound as though it was a blessing that your soap career came to an end when it did, if not the way it did, when it did. Uh, I think you know, you so. Make, you make it sound so. as though it was a blessing that that you were able to devote your full attention to the needs of your children at the exact moment in time that you were. That's right. I think it did work out. I mean, it was hard. It was hard to let go. And you know, since my marriage ended up in a divorce, and you know, things kind of broke up. Well, I feel bad. Like maybe if I'd have stayed in New York, I, it would have been easier for me to get back into the business because. I actually wasn't living in L.A. I was living in Ojai, 70 miles north of L.A., so I wasn't in that circle at all. Sure. But especially for my my autistic daughter, I needed to be there. It took every single ounce of strength and energy that I had to, you know, get my other kids through school and then try to find out how I could help Johanna the best way I could. So my path changed, and, you know, it was all good. You know, I keep mentioning your first book, From the Raven to the Dove, which you published in 2002. Uh, uh-huh. You know, I happened, to, I happened to run across a copy of it sometime back in one of my favorite secondhand bookstores, and, and I found it to be incredibly absorbing and interesting, even when it veers <laughs> off in, into, into subjects that I'm not all that familiar with, like, you, you know, your deep sense of spirituality. Emotional and, transformation you know, <laughs> and psychotherapy. <laughs> in uh, tell me how the idea of this, of this memoir came to you. You know, I went through a big change and spent sure. time at home and, dealing with autism, but I also finally had the time to work on myself a little bit. And I found that, you know, I had some issues. I mean, everybody does with childhood things and parents and whatnot. You know, and so I started therapies, but also I was a nurse. And I never forgot that concept of wanting to be a healer. So I got very involved in alternative medicine and all kinds of different healing and Eastern healing practices, yoga, meditation, spirituality, and went through a pretty intense therapeutic psychotherapy awakening. And it was so powerful that around that time, I just I thought maybe if I write a book, it will help me fill in the transition between Indiana girl, New York actress, and mother and you know, back to being more interested in healing and spirituality. So that book started with me using it sort of as a uh, a way to bridge the transition into what my next step would be. Wow. So it was, I actually, I'm just about to publish a new book called Spiritual Magic, which is about metaphysics, kind of an intro to metaphysics and healing. And so I have re-edited from the Raven to the Dove, and I'm going to republish that as an ebook. Both of them are going to be published as ebooks. Oh, fantastic! And and it was funny to me to re-edit from the Raven to the Dove because it was pretty powerful emotional stuff. <laughs> and
And, you know, I got very poetic, and I really let it all hang out. And anybody who ended up getting a copy of that book, I think I sold about it. I sold my run, which was about a 1,000. Anybody who ended up with the copy, man, they ended up getting, like, a personal journal. <laughs> because I did, I did cut, you know, I edited it a lot better and cut some of the stuff out and just made it more clear. It was definitely an emotional, you know, I really expressed myself openly emotional. So they, you know, if anybody owns a copy of that book, it's it's like a personal <laughs> diary because it's changed. It's much better though. Um, I think it's just a lot more clear about my process. So, did did you always understand yourself to be a spiritual person and so connected to a deeper understanding of the world around you, or was it something that that uh, you know? I can imagine that dealing with a child with autism in a time in which that disease, I mean, that disease is still very much a mystery, but in that time, it was, it was very little was yeah. known about that disease, I believe. I, I, I can imagine that dealing with that must have helped you, in a way, connect to your own spirituality and your own sense of, of uh, the universe around you. I've always been very spiritual. My mother tells me that when I was three years old, when we walked into church, I would let go of her hand and walk straight up to the first row and sit there. I just loved watching, you know, the whole, the pageantry, the, sure, you know, feeling everything. Um, I've always been extraordinarily sensitive to energy, so I could feel like nature and the elementals. I always felt things. I always felt angels. I was connected from a very early age, and in From the Raven to the Dove, I talk about, you know, my experience with angels and different things. I've always had that sensitivity. I was so sensitive that the world was kind of difficult for me. I was very quiet and shy and frightened. And here's where stepping into being an actress in theater and everything helped me because it allowed me to get some of these emotions out and express them while being somebody else. It was like a protection and it allowed helped me to express myself. But the spirituality was always there and I always, I love reading. I read, 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 read. So I always read books. I can remember even while I was on the edge of night, I was really into Tibetan Buddhism. And I was just reading tons of information on that and meditation and back then Wicca and Goddess. I loved Jung. I was always interested in psychology and how the inner mind worked and all that stuff. So I'd always read things about that. You are so correct in that having a profound emotional experience like a daughter born with autism you have to redefine yourself in terms of the world. Sure. And that really sent me back to my spirituality, trying to make sense of why did this happen, how can I make the best of it, and needing all of the spiritual resources of my inner strength in order to do that. So, yeah, it all kind of came together and opened up then. Plus, I was just looking for a way to help her. And I was reading everything that came out about it, but some of it was just nuts. People were doing brain surgery and, and giving these weird drugs, you know, all kinds of drugs. It's like, I'm not going to do that to her. There must be another way. So I was constantly searching for alternative ways to find the way to get through to her. And actually, a lot of it worked. She is just, she's nonverbal, essentially. She won't initiate anything verbal, but she understands pretty much everything you say. And her eye contact is excellent, and she loves people. She's very loving, very sweet. Yesterday was her birthday, actually, 24 yesterday. Wow. So she still lives with me. There's no way I would ever 
put her anywhere. I looked around at, you know, various group homes. No way. Sure. She's staying with me, and we love each other, and we're having a blast. So a lot of the spirituality started there as I was looking for alternative ways to deal with her. Then I was reading and exploring, going to workshops, working with groups. and uh, Or even just connect with her. I mean, I, I can imagine that... You had to right. you had to learn a whole new way to connect. And it's nonverbal. You can't do it with words. That's not going to work with her. So how else do you do it? You do it with energy, with feeling, with love, with a deeper connection. And it does work. She eventually said, Mommy, she was five. Wow. She has words that she uses, but you kind of have to force her. I bought this whole series of books that was written for people that are hearing impaired because it doesn't have all the little prepositions in it. So I will work with her. She can read those books. She's still mostly nonverbal. It's just energy, and she knows when energy feels good and when it doesn't, you know. <laughs> just, just like her mommy. <laughs> and uh, the autism movement now, I mean, how do, you, how do you feel about the idea that has been posited that it's mainly caused by, uh, you know, all the vaccinations and, you know, stuff of that nature? I mean, do you, do you give any credence to that at all or...? Or, uh, well, at first I thought, you know, I thought the vaccination interested me not because of the vaccinations, although I think they give way too many. We're talking about a little tiny baby and they're giving, sure. ah. But it was not so much the vaccinations as what additive that they put in the vaccinations to preserve it so that they can put it in a multi-dose bottle. And that preservative is made out of mercury. Well, that's a no-brainer. That's like them telling people eat low-fat food, but then filling everything with sugar, sugar everywhere, which is causing <laughs> obesity. I mean, sure. you don't put mercury. Mercury <laughs> is a neuron toxin, a brain toxin. Everyone knows that, and they put it in a preservative in the immunizations. To me, that's just stupid. So they started taking those out for the most part now. You can demand to get a single dose that it doesn't have the mercury in it. So I thought, well, that could be it. That's a neurotoxin, you know. Sure. So in the beginning I thought so, and now, you know, now I don't know. I don't know. They're looking at genetics. They're looking at a lot of things. Personally, I think it has something to do environmentally. There were too many babies that were being born. It's up to, God, what is the percentage now? It's it's one in 300. One in 300 babies. It might even be less than that, like one in 170 babies now. That's absurd. That means something's wrong. And to me, you know, it could be the water, it could be the air, it could be the food. I don't know. But I think it's something. I think we just have to be more careful about the toxicity of everything around us. I'm at the point, I mean, in the beginning I was like, what, what, what? Now, you know, you have to let all that go because now the most important thing is Johanna living a productive and, you know, fulfilling life. And, you know, so, how, do you, how do you avoid toxins in this world? I mean, you know, uh, what do you, are you not going to drink water? Are you not going to drink milk? Are you not going right. to eat food? I mean, you have to, you have to come in contact well, with all Well, our immune system was supposed to be able to deal with all that. <laughs> but, you know, it's not. It's not. So there's an issue in there somewhere having to do with the immune system, really. We're back to AIDS and the immune system, where it's just not dealing with the toxins the way it should. I'm glad, the, the thing I'm glad about is right now there's a lot more money being poured into it because it's such a big thing. Here's why. It's costing the school systems a ton of money and the federal government and the state governments to deal with all these children. Sure. So now at least because of that, you know, they're taking notice and putting more money into research. 
and here's where my nursing kicks in. You know, I love science, and, you know, research is the thing. We need to research it. We need more money. Figure it out. We're smart enough. We can figure it out, but people have to put money into it and look at it, and I think they're starting to. It's difficult to handle. Spiritual magic, which you say is coming out uh, very soon, is that does that continue in an autobiographical vein, or is it more... Actually, no. This is more... My life is changing right now. I'm, I'm, you know, retired. I just write. Joe and I, we're about to make another big move. I think we're going to move again to a place where, you know, I'm, I'm ready to set up Grandma's house. <laughs> and, uh, and so I think I'm going to probably start teaching. I'm also a certified yoga instructor, I don't know that I'll teach yoga per se, although I'll use elements of it, but I think once I move out, I'm going to open up like a small little studio and start teaching. So this book was written to be sort of my initial textbook. It's an overall outline of basic energetic healing and metaphysical principles, all done in very simple fashion, but I, as a nurse and also as a yoga instructor, I give an overall view of the entire energy system of the human body using physical body, mental, emotional, and spiritual elements and talk about how it's all set up and also go through the realization process and at the end give a little synopsis of it and include how the manifestation process works. So it's, it's more like Metaphysics 101. And I do add some personal little things here and there, but it's mostly a nonfiction information type book you know it it seems like this area of study is so easy to it opens itself up very easily to ridicule i think you know with the new ag and the crystals and you know all the all the things that are easy to mock all the tenets that are easy to mock about this area of study uh you know it does and i thought about that i thought about that and as i wrote it i love science i love science so i wrote this book with that in mind i don't think i mention a crystal in it (laughs) <laughs> and, I, and I don't mention the word New Age, and I wrote it more using myself as a medical professional. I only mention my work as an actress, I think, in my biography at the back, and I use a lot of science in it because actually metaphysics is the philosophy behind physics. Sure. So I actually include quite a bit of interesting physics and science information in the book. The only place... Here I'm going to defer to Oriental medicine because Western medicine doesn't use consciousness you know, or the four-body system, mental and emotional, so much in its approach to medicine, although it's starting to now. I think science is starting to see that stress affects the immune system and they're starting to look at the way people get stressed because even my last few years working as a nurse, we, we brought those things in you know, emotional and mental things that affected people's physical disease process or whatever. So I tried to make it as (laughs) rational and scientific and (laughs) clear as I could, bringing in oriental medicine, because I believe in oriental medicine, and I certainly believe in yoga and meditation. So I brought those things in, but I was very careful to keep it at levels where people couldn't just say, she's a, you know, a walking (laughs) wage Just for people who are given to be skeptical about, you know, this area of... of, uh, I mean, there still will be people. If you don't don't believe in God, you're going to think I'm a nut because I definitely bring (laughs) spirituality into it. 
but that's okay. You know, you you can't please everybody. And there still will be people because I talk about the chakra system and, you know, the nadis and some of the energy flow of the Eastern medical practices and acupuncture and those things. But I think they're far more accepted than they used to be. But I did try my best to not get too far out like I did in From the Rainbow. <laughs> so I was way out there, totally way out there. <laughs> and even when I rewrote the preface to Raven to the Dove, I left the original, but I added an addendum to the end and said, I re-edited this a little bit, and I have to laugh. I have to laugh a little bit at how exuberant I was. But you want to know what? I'm going to leave it the way it is because that was my path. So, you know. And are people going to be able to get a physical copy of Spiritual Magic because... You know, there are some of us who, who you know, believe yes. in the tactile experience of still holding a book in our hands. And, I know. And, I uh, love books, too. Well, I'm going to start out with this EPUB. There are a couple of publishers that are interested, but I'm going to wait and see how the EPUB does. And to be honest, it's so I can get a better deal with the book publishing. I published my own from the Raven to the Dove, and I'll never do that again. <laughs> that was, it was an experience, but it was really, really hard. And, you know, if you're going to publish a book, you need a really good publisher to back you. So, yes, I hope so eventually. I hope it does eventually come out in book form. You know, I, uh, I, uh, I wonder how you feel about your career now, having had quite a chunk of time away from the spotlight and away from from uh, that expression of your artistic self. I wonder how you feel about the work that you turned in because, you know, as I said, so many people are, you know, you still have so many fans out there even though you've been out of the game for, for uh, you know, quite a long time now to the detriment of the game, believe me. Uh, <laughs> how do you feel about that time in your life now? I loved it. It was, it was so much fun. It was so exciting. I wouldn't have changed anything. I mean, you know... I wish I had known then what I know now, <laughs> because work-wise, I grew so much, and I'm very happy with my work. But personality-wise, you know, it was overwhelming sometimes. Plus, I was young and silly and did a lot of crazy things, too, but it was wonderful, and I'm just very, very appreciative that I had the opportunity to do that. I love acting. What I don't like is the process that you have to go through to get jobs, and I'm just not really interested in doing that anymore. There's so many other things. I mean, and I, and I'm, I'm sure navigating the politics of a set is something that you're probably not predisposed to either, just from reading yes, between although, the lines and you know, you know, listening to you. Because of all my psychological work, I think I could handle that now, actually. I'm much stronger inside. It's like I can let so many things go. They don't bother me anymore. I it just doesn't matter, you know. I just have I have this inner strength in myself that I do what I do and, and I can accept what other people do and it doesn't affect me so much. So that wouldn't bother me so much. And as a matter of fact, I have friends that are still in the business, including Francis Fisher, and I've always sure. said, you know, if you ever want to throw me apart, that would be fun. <laughs> I'll do it. The business end. The business end is what I don't like, what you have to do sure. to try to get the parts and everything. Of course. I just you know, it's so funny. We were talking about Linda Dano, and, and you know, I drag her in here. She she works on QVC now. She designs, you know, various decor accessories for QVC, and she has her own company. And, and you know, whenever she's going to make an appearance, I always drag her in here to talk about it. And, 
and uh, I always find a way to drag the conversation back around to soaps because I love talking about it, as I'm sure you can tell. <laughs> and, you know, she always swears up and down that she's done with that part of her career. She's left it behind. But, you know, I always tell her, you'll never convince me that you wouldn't Let say yes. Let someone offer her a good part. <laughs> you Once wouldn't an say actress, yes to the Always right an offer. actress. I, no, you know, she's the, probably like me. She's probably like me. She just doesn't want to deal with, a, yeah. with what you have to do. <laughs> But if someone offered her a great part, yeah. That's exactly right. You know, there are some offers that are too good to say no to. And, and, you know, I don't know exactly what that offer might be, but, but, uh, you know, I always tell her, uh, you know, you would not turn down the right offer. And and I wonder if you would, if you would turn down the right offer if someone came knocking on your door. One of the the four remaining soaps came to you and said, you know, we have this part, this is what it is. Uh Do you want to come play with us for a while? I I wonder. You know, in some. in the past 20 years, probably I would have turned them down. I just was doing something else. But I'm at a point right now where I'm wide open. It's very exciting. When the wow. person first called me about the reality show, I didn't know what it was. A friend of mine who's a manager in L.A. called and said, they're looking for you. So she hooked <laughs> me up. And I'm like, this is the perfect time in my life. I'm just wide oh, open great. kind of to doing anything except a reality show. <laughs> But uh, <laughs> acting is fun, fun, a lot of fun. Boy, I can't even begin to tell you how much of fun this one was to put together for you guys. And I can't thank the gloriously divine Sharon Gabbett enough for allowing me to bend her ear for a time and for allowing me to ask her to relive the good old days. Quickly before we wrap this up, Sharon has just created a new Facebook page specifically to interact with her fans. And you can find that by searching on Facebook for Sharon Rose Gabbett. Three words, last name spelled G-A-B-E-T. Sharon Rose Gabbett uh, will get you there. And she says she would love to hear from all you crazy longtime soap fans. Uh, and one more time, just in case you missed it, Sharon's brand new book, brand new ebook, I should say, is entitled Spiritual Magic. And it is available on Amazon.com for the Kindle and on iBooks in the iTunes Music Store. Uh, and as you heard her tell you, she has also re-released as an e-book her first tome, a ravishing memoir entitled From the Raven to the Dove. And I'll tell you flat out that they are both well worth your time and energy. Check them out at iTunes and at Amazon.com. And thanks once more to the fabulous Sharon Gabbett for stopping in here and hanging out. Don't be a stranger, lady, and come on back to Brandon's Buzz any old time. Uh, speaking of Brandon's Buzz, that I guess that's a wrap, kids. One more installment of the Buzz in the can. If you're listening already, then you clearly know how to find the show, but in case you don't, three places online. Blogtalkradio.com is home base for Brandon's Buzz. Uh, it's mission control, it really is. You can find out what's on the show, what's been on the show, what's coming on the show, all there at that website. You can leave messages. You can send me emails. It really is home base for Brandon's Buzz. Again, it's blogtalkradio.com slash Brandon's Buzz. You can also find me at my blog, brandonsbuzz.com. At the top of any page at brandonsbuzz.com is a blue button marked radio. That takes you to a full radio archive, a full listing of every episode of this show. This is episode number 98. This and all previous 97 in the radio archive at brandonsbuzz.com. Uh, click around, check it out. It's fun stuff. I'm also on iTunes. I'm on iTunes, guys, right next to Sharon Gabbett. Just type Brandon's Buzz in the iTunes Music Store search box. Scroll down to the podcast section. Click on My Puzzle Piece logo. That will take you to a full list of every episode of the show, which you can download. You can download individual episodes as podcasts, or you can subscribe to the show and have new episodes automatically show up in your library 
the minute they're uploaded to the store. So listen, I'm everywhere. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. I'm on iTunes. I'm on everything. If you Google the words Brandon's Buzz, something will pop up that clearly points you in my direction. And as always, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you guys coming in my direction. I can't tell you how much I appreciate you guys finding me and listening to me. And I hope you continue finding and listening to Brandon's Buzz. Hi, everybody out there. This is Eileen Kristen, and I have just been on Brandon's Buzz. This is a great show and a very sophisticated mind. So spread the word, Brandon's Buzz. This is Claire Massey from Tammy Show, and you're listening to Brandon's Buzz. Great guy. Great show. Check hey it out. Hey, guys. This is Brett Claywell from One Life to Live, and you're listening to Brandon's Buzz. Hi. This is Lynn Herring on Brandon's Buzz. It's the great entertainment talk show on now. Brandon, I love you. Thanks for having me. So if you feel that you just can't take it, and your world isn't what it seems, don't forget that life can be what you make it. Better when you live on a street of dreams. Hey, this is Nia Peoples, and you're with Brandon Buzz, the place to be. Hi, everybody. This is Nicholas Walker. Merci à vous tous. Écoutez Brandon Buzz sur Blog Talk Radio. Bonsoir et à très bientôt. <laughs> <laughs> 